Before Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, and Conversations with the Killer, The Bundy Tapes, and before the trilogy of Paradise Lost, The Child Murders of Robin Hood Hills, there was Brothers Keeper, a masterpiece of American documentary filmmaking. Unveiled soon after Errol Morris's The Thin Blue Line and Michael Moore's Roger and Me, this is where documentary filmmaker Joe Berlinger got his start. The film began with a murder. Welcome to the dangerous art of the documentary. I'm your host, Tiller Russell. Making nonfiction films is a non-linear and meandering and nearly always intuitive process. With every movie I've set out to make, somewhere along the line, it became something different than what I had intended. And as long as I had the patience and persistence to pay attention to the material, it has led me where it needed to go. Joe Berlinger's entire body of work and the arc of his career has followed a similarly unpredictable path. In a way, so did today's conversation. I set out to ask Joe why murder occupies such a central part in his life's work. Instead, he shared his insights into our fascination with true crime, both that of today's audiences and among filmmakers like ourselves. And he maps out the way in which the medium has changed and grown as he has done so as well. I give you a conversation with Joe Berlinger. You know, it's interesting because you were a hero of mine for a long time. And I am, uh, I guess, proud and pleased to be able to call you a friend now. And so... Um, well, that's nice of you to say. Both things are nice of you to say. And I consider you a friend as well. So, Well, I, I, I just, I, it's, you know, it's really cool because you were one of the people that inspired me. I mean, one of the very few people who, who really inspired me, you know, to become a filmmaker and as a filmmaker throughout. And it's so interesting now, um, you, as our kind of, you know, as we have kind of converged a bit in terms of both the kind of work that we're doing and, you know, hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we get to collaborate at some point or another, cool. but I'm, I'm very curious, you know, typically what we have been doing in the, in the podcast is, you know, taking a particular filmmaker and a particular film and going deep on it. But I think your body of work is so, um, canonical really and so and has and really has been from the jump and has such a fascinating arc to it that I'd love to uh, take you through and, and sort of ask all the questions that I've got if you're down with it. Sure but only if you explain to me what you mean by my work is canonical. <laughs> well just you know they you entered with a film that was an instant classic, right? So like Brothers Keeper comes onto the scene and that film right from the get-go was instantly in the canon and instantly a classic documentary that to this day is one of my favorite films ever made. Oh, cool. And and so that strong, and then frankly followed it up with movie after movie that was, whether it's the Paradise Lost trilogy or Metallica, some kind of monster. And I, you know, I adored Crude, Whitey, you know, the Bundy tape, Cecil, you know, and here we are all the way through, you know, confronting a serial killer, which, you know, as I was texting with you the other day, I think is just, you know, just a startling piece of work. And as I was sitting there thinking about your body of work, uh, you know, I have a bunch of questions for you. Cool. Go for it, man. Um, okay. So 
Brothers Keeper, um, and, and even sort of before Brothers Keeper, um, talk about your connection to the Maisels and sort yeah. of your launch into, in, into filmmaking and that film in particular. Yeah, I mean, I've had a very strange uh, arc to my career on a certain level. And, um, you know, being one of the noted documentarians today, um, you know, you would think that like I was nine and 10 and making films and desirous of being a filmmaker, but that never really, I mean, I always loved film of course, but you know, the idea to become a filmmaker actually came relatively late. Um, I was a, a language major in college. Uh, I spoke really good German, fluent German because of my studies. In high school, basically I, I was exposed to Holocaust liberation footage, obsessed over it because I couldn't believe that this happened and, and the, 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 just how horrific that footage is. And I ruminated on the fact that I'm Jewish, but we don't really have any Jewish tr traditions at home. I'm German, but we don't have any German traditions at home. None of my family perished in the Holocaust because you know, my great, great, great grandfather in the 1850s came over from Germany. And, you know, so I was just, I, I was, when I was 13 or 14, I was exposed to liberation footage of the concentration camps. And I just, I was, I just obsessed on the idea of uh, injustice. And I obsessed on the idea of, gee, if I was living in that time period, even though I'm not really German and I'm not really Jewish, I would have been killed. You know, when I say I'm not really Jewish, of course, I'm Jewish, but, you know, there were not a lot of family traditions. You know, we were kind of didn't, ha didn't have that that in our home. Can I interject with a question? Because that's that it brings up a really interesting thing. You know, what I was thinking as you were saying that is that is murder on its sort of on, on the biggest scale that it's ever happened in some yeah. fundamental in some fundamental yeah, way. It's, and, yeah. And then those images it is it's the sort of documentation and it's the sort of it's the original kind of uh, and a nice grandest, most horrifying sort of, mur you know, archival murder in yeah. some sense or another. And, and, and really, it strikes me that that as a starting image uh, for you and, and a sort of launch pad murder and its exploration and the sort of social justice issues around it yeah. has been a defining thing in your work from inception through now and yeah. in almost everything you've done. I mean, yeah, it's, it, it struck me deeply. And yet I still didn't have the idea to become a filmmaker. I, I, I became obsessed with, with, with German history because I had to understand how is it that this evil happened? And by coincidence, my high school, um, I grew up in Chappaqua, New York, where the Clintons now live. Uh, and my high school started offering German, you know, around the time I was obsessed with these ideas. So everyone else took French or Spanish. I took two years of German in high school because I really had to understand. I had to understand how people could do such a thing and was, were Germans particularly evil? Obviously, I had this naive view back then. Um, and so I get to college, I went to Colgate University and there's no film program there. Actually my senior year, they started having some film classes, but uh, no, no, you couldn't major in film. And I, I wasn't even thinking about film as a career. Um, and in fact, uh, I took German as an easy course because I still was interested in it. And in, at, in, at, Col at, at college, um, they require you, if you're gonna take 
they make you start over unless you did AP and I didn't take AP. I know this is a really boring story, long story, but the bottom line is I, I took German, not intending to major in it, but just I started taking German over again because uh, it was an easy, I figured out, okay, that's easy. I can do German. I did two years of high school German. I'll take German 101 again at Colgate. But I ended up meeting the, my, this professor, a guy named Dirk Hoffman, who still is a great friend of mine today. And, and, and I ended up becoming a German language and literature major and took other languages. And in college, my only goal was to figure out how to live in Europe and be paid to speak languages one way or the other. That was my goal. Hmm. And so um, like, obviously film was of interest and, you know, I, you know, I can tell you, we can talk for five podcasts about all the influential films in my life and how important film is to me, but never, never thought about it as a career. Um, but because I spoke multiple languages and it's, it's a longer story, but it's, the details are boring, but I figured out a way to bluff my way into a job at Ogilvy and Mather huh. in their That's Frankfurt, in their Frankfurt office, O&M, you know, this was at the era of the big international ad agencies have, you know, advertising for their American-based clients all over the world. And they needed somebody who spoke a bunch of languages. So the first time I was ever on a film set was a Nescafe commercial where I was like the junior kind of client handholder uh, because I spoke multiple languages. And that's when the light bulb about film went off. Um, you know, here I am on a, on a TV commercial set and I'm, it's like lights, camera, director. Oh, this is- I want that job. <laughs> exactly. That's cool. And strangely enough, when I was in Frankfurt, Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise, um, was playing in a local movie theater. And that movie just blew my mind. That's Such a masterpiece. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, so the combat, so I, so I came to Germany because of this obsessive interest in all things Nazi that just turned into language proficiency that turned into this job at Ogilvy. And then it just all started coming together. And I just was struck. I want to be a, and I walked out of the Jarmusch film. I want to be a filmmaker and I got to figure this out. And so Ogilvy kind of sent me back to New York and I used, you know, that time as an agency t junior TV commercial producer to figure out where I wanted to be in film um, and how to get in, you know, get to the other side of the table and, and get into the production business, not be on the agency side. And by coincidence, we, were, we hired the Maisel brothers to shoot an unscripted American Express commercial. Um, I wasn't, that's the irony of it all. Like at the time I was looking to become a filmmaker, um, I wasn't necessarily looking to become a documentarian. Uh, Interesting. So this so get into the film business. So, you know, uh, so we hired the Maisel brothers to do these unscripted, which was then new and, and, and kind of a new trend, you know, real people commercials, the whole idea that you would go out and shoot unscripted commercials instead of the typical scripted you know, TV commercial that was new then, obviously very commonplace now. <clears throat> and so we hired the, you know, these seminal documentarians to do it. Um, and I kind of hit it off with them in particular, David Mazels, who's the brother who passed away way too early. Yep. And we hit it off and they liked the idea of doing commercials. They don't, you know, and I was on the agency side. I'm, I'm only 25 or 26 years old at the time. What year are we talking about to set the scene? This is 85, 1985. I, I lived, oh wait, uh, Germany was 84, 85. And so this was probably 86, sorry. So it's 1986. Um, 
And I hit it off with David Mazels, who, who, who was going to then die, you know, shortly, like a year later. And they were, I pitched the idea. I said, hey, you guys should do more commercials. Let me come work for you as your marketing and publicity guy. And I'll get you more commercials, you know, I'll, you know, which, so I became their executive producer for commercials at the Maisel brothers, you know, at a time when you, you know, all the agencies were on Madison Avenue, hence the phrase Madison Avenue. And now they're all over the place. But my job was literally to take a three quarter inch videotape of their reel. Cause this is pre-internet amazing pre-digitization. My job was I went from agency to agency, having meetings, showing their reel and trying to get them commercial work. And in that five year period, that's, I used that as my film school. And I think, you know, looking back now, everything happens for a reason. I've had an amazing career. Uh, the, the experiences I've had making documentaries are just, you know, each film has taught me some, something so important about my life and my and 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 have been amazing experiences and i do believe i was meant to be a documentarian initially um did you resist it did did, did you but, fight it at all like did you did you sort of think like okay i want to be the next jarmish i don't want to do docs i want to do features or did you I, know I, I did initially think it was a bit of a stepping stone but again i think everything happens for a reason and the great irony to me of being one of the noted documentarians of the last three decades is that had, had we hired Ridley Scott to do the American Express commercial and had I hit it off with Ridley Scott and had Ridley Scott hired me, just to pick a name, because right. he's big in commercials and movies, I could have just as easily have convinced Ridley. I was just looking for a job to get closer to film. And so Ridley Scott, if he had hired me and I'd gone to LA, I would have had a very different- Would have gone that one. So I was not looking to get into documentary. I was looking to get into film. Looking back now, it all makes sense because it scratched that itch of the Holocaust liberation footage and all the things you mentioned before. And, and you know, I just, once I became immersed in the Maisel School, this idea that you can jump out a window and hope there's a mattress on the other side to catch you as you follow a story in the present tense. I mean, all that just so became so, such a part of my DNA, but it wasn't the original intention. So, so break down the Maisel School for, you know, for, for p folks who are don't necessarily, you know, aren't necessarily hip to the history of, you know, the intricacies of, of the doc uh, documentary filmmaking world. Talk about sort of direct cinema, cinema verite and sort yeah. of what they were known for. Yeah. And, um, you know, you'll probably need more than the 40 minutes we earmarked, <laughs> you know, uh, because there's some, you know, I, I'm telling these stories, these initial stories that are, are, are kind of long, but I'll try to, I'll try to be as succinct as I can. Um, you know, prior to the early sixties, as you obviously well know, um, documentaries were really nothing more than newsreel footage. You go out and shoot something without sync sound and you'd lay in voice, voiceover narration. And, and they rarely, if ever, with a few exceptions, you know, Flaherty's Nanook of the North or whatever. But, you know, by and large, documentary was relegated to either news reporting or to reporting on past events and narrated and no sync sound. And that was because there was a there was a technical barrier to shooting sync sound until the early 60s, which because you could be when you shoot documentaries on film, which is what people did back then, because there was no video film and sound ran on separate machines. And unless you plugged into an electrical source, they did not run at the same speed and therefore you couldn't get them in sync. So you couldn't get sync sound ever. And so in the early sixties, Robert Drew, Penny Baker, Mazels, all these 
direct cinema pioneers and each one claims to have had a bigger role in, in the invention. So I just credit everyone, Penny Baker, right. Leacock, Maisels, Drew. Um, they basically invented this crystal tech sync technology, which allowed you, which we take for granted. You know, you pick up a telephone today and you, you make know, a movie yeah, and, and, and you have sync sound. But back then it was a challenge. So because of this crystal sync technology, they actually created the ability to go out with a 16 millimeter camera and to go out with your, your separate Nagra sound recording machine film, and then you can go back and sync it up so that you could actually get sync sound. Now that technological achievement could have ended right there and documentaries could have remained the same, but the first big revolution in documentaries and I think there's been three, which we can get to in a bit. Um, the first big revolution in the modern documentary is that not only did they invent that technical achievement, but they also realized that there's an aesthetic and philosophical achievement, which is documentaries can be as dramatic and as interesting and as any scripted feature film, and that you can go out into the real world and follow a story as it's unfolding. Again, everything I'm saying now is so commonplace, the younger filmmaker will be saying like, what is he talking about? But this was a new idea to go to not- to turn it into, I mean, to turn it into cinema, essentially, right? I mean, essentially it was news reportage, voiceover driven, and then all of a sudden this idea comes along that, you know, real life, can be cinema. And then those are the movies that those guys are making, exactly. which, which have an audience. Grey Gardens, Gimme Shelter, Salesman, you know, uh, Fred Wiseman's Titty Cut Follies, this incredible movie that, you know, is one of my touchstone films. Gimme Shelter is one of my touchstone films. This idea that you can go out into the real world, follow things as they're unfolding without a script and bring it back into the edit room. And that's your scripting process of creating real drama out of, out of footage that you just shoot. That was a revolutionary new idea. And that these can be ambiguous character portraits, that it doesn't have to be a factual report about you know pollution or the Nazis or whatever, that you can just do these, you know, Grey Gardens, which is in the 70s, not the 60s, you know, this, these amazing human character portraits yep. that equals cinema. So that's what the Maisels represented, this first big wave of the idea that unscripted documentary can be as compelling and as dramatic as any, uh, as any scripted movie, but with the benefit that it's real, you know, and that just caught me. That just caught me. Um, so, so let me jump in. Cause I want to, I want to connect a dot here, which is, so your path is, um, from kind of these initial striking Holocaust images and your fascination with that, which sort of leads you eventually into the advertising business and sort of stumbling onto a film set where the light bulb goes off and it's like, man, you know, you see the Jarmish movie and, and, and it's like, that's what I want to do, become a filmmaker. You wind up back in New York and serendipitously you cross paths with the Maisels, who are these icons of, uh, of the sort of documentary world. And, you know, it, and I love the way kind of these steps and, and hustles end up kind of determining a life, right? So you end up like, wait a minute, this, that's the next step. And so you end up in their camp. How yeah. do you go from sort of, you know, being in the Maisels camp and being a part of that amazing um, I guess, 
legacy and, and, and sort of body of work to, okay, I'm making my first movie. How, how do you, how do you get to, how do you get yeah, to, so, yeah, I'll get into that, but it's funny. You mentioned, you know, how the serendipity of everything kind of connects. And when I look back, it all makes sense. Um, and I feel like this was the path I was supposed to be on, but interestingly, and we can talk about it later. I also feel that way about my films, you know, like paradise lost. We needed Metallica music convince them to give us the music, a friendship ensues, and then I go do the Metallica thing. Uh, I can connect strange dots to like all the experiences in my life about how, my, how a lot of my films came to be. But anyway, getting back to the Maisels, so I'm working for the Maisels, you know, basically getting them commercials in an era where documentaries, you know, weren't the most lucrative thing. That's the other mind boggling thing that we should talk about at some point is, you know, when I started making documentaries, if you weren't selling your documentary to HBO or PBS, you weren't making a documentary or you weren't getting funded for your documentary. Uh, there was no such thing as doc series. I mean, you know, MTV's real world was happening in the early nineties, but that was an anomaly. But the, basically, you know, there was not the business that we have today. You flash forward to today. I just can't believe that I'm lucky enough 30 years later to still be making films where it's a real business, where it's, you know, it's, it's well, never been more popular. That's, you know, so that's something we should. Well, not, and, and not, and not only, I mean, not only was it sort of impossibly difficult as you start to actually get financing to get movies made, I mean, to get these documentaries made, but also it wasn't culturally relevant. It wasn't like it had nonfiction has become uh, and particularly sort of this true crime genre has swallowed the culture in terms of the fascination. But like Absolutely. once upon a time when you're starting, this wasn't hip, there wasn't any money in it. And it's sort of amazing that the arc of your career yeah. from sort of, and yet the consistency in the body of work and how yeah. the culture has swerved to where you are in some yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, honestly, in the earliest days of our career, the first couple of films, even though we made some money on them eventually, I mean, we risked everything to make Brothers Keeper. Um, but in the first decade of my career, I really made money and raised my family as a TV commercial director. You know, that's where I really made the money was the TV commercials and the docs were kind of a, a side gig. I mean, you know, it was my life, but it wasn't where I was making most of my money. Um, but, but getting back to your question, so I'm at the Maisels, this incredible laboratory of, of direct cinema uh, and I'm just soaking up and sucking in the philosophy and it's just really turning me on this. You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, we've talked about stuff of late like Cecil or, you know, and how, and we both do like with your uh, Night Stalker thing, we, you know, I, I, I've, I've landed in the world of right now, uh, heavy use of recreations. If you had met me or we had chatted right. in the early nineties, I would have told you recreations. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm yep. a cinema verite purist. I don't even believe yep. interviews unless you absolutely have to resort to an interview. I'm a, I'm cinema verite, man. So yep. it's, it's funny how I, I've, I've evolved a little bit, you know, in terms of, you know, choosing the right tools. And part of that has to do with having made some movies now, you know, scripted movies and just opening my world up a little bit, but I was a diehard cinema verite purist in the earliest of days. But here, you know, basically I'm at Maisel's learning everything I can, being turned on by the philosophy. I made a short film um, called Outrageous Taxi Stories. I just decided, you know, I actually called up a, a friend of mine who was this film professor at Colgate. He came my senior year and I did take a film class, but I still never thought I'd have do film for a career. And, you know, back then making a film was a big deal. Like, like, you know, when you're 28 and, you know, you have no money, um, 
you know, uh, and I said, I'm just trying to, I, I got to figure out how to make a film. I got, he said, listen, just go make a film. I mean, it was the most basic advice. He said, you want to make a film? Stop talking about it. Go make a film. Fig you know, and I'm like, okay, uh, let me figure that. Out. So I, so I just kind of decided to, um, actually I'm, I'm leaving out a, a, an important part. I, so I kept talking about wanting to make a film and then I go on a blind date with my wife, who's now, we're still together. My, my, you know, my first wife and only wife we've been together. She's seen the whole arc of my career. We were, mm -hmm. we went on a, we went on a date and it was one of those magical dates that, you know, you just know something special was happening. And we just, mm -hmm. you know, we went to an Edie Brickell. I don't even know if people know who Edie Brickell is these days. Of course, of course. Time, it's soundtrack of my, soundtrack of my youth. I love right, it. But, but Edie Brickell and New Bohemians just hit the scene in 1989. This would be, um, so I've been at Maisel's for a couple of years. I'm talking to my film professor who's saying, go make a film, just get off your ass and make a film, but stop talking about it. And so I go on this, this date with, uh, with my now wife, Lauren Eiferman. Um, and, um, and we're just, we're at an Edie Brickell concert and just, we slipped into this groove, like we've known each other forever. And it was just one of those magical dates. And at dinner, which was the, the more nervous part, you know, I kept talking about myself as a filmmaker. Oh yeah, I'm making this film about New York City cab drive. Cause this is the idea I had was I'm gonna make a film about New York City cab drivers, you know, and, and just do a talking head thing about the most outrageous thing that's ever happened in their cabs over the years. And I'm talking to yeah, I'm making this film, you know, like, and then we go on and continue to have this incredible date. And by the end of the night, we both knew that, you know, something special is happening here. I go to bed and I'm, and I'm like, Oh my God, I told her I'm making a film. What a fucking idiot. I'm not making a film. <laughs> oh shit. I better make it. Cause she said, Oh, I'd love to help you cast that. That'd be fun if, if I could help you. I'm like, great, great. You, you, let's, you know, so that's the thing that made me start making great story. Doing, getting off my ass because I told this woman that uh, I'm making a film I'm like shit, I better make a film. Anyway. So I make this short film. Bruce Sanofsky, my longtime collaborator, you know, uh, for, for the first half of my career, uh, he was at Maisel's as a TV commercial editor, and I was mainly their, their executive producer for commercials. So Bruce and I would often sit together, you know, getting a commercial back then, you'd have to cut a custom reel, like, okay, it's a, it's a bank commercial. Okay, what, what stuff have we shot of banks that we can you know, put a custom reel together to go get the job. So Bruce and I spent a lot of time together, me as the salesman and him as the editor. And so when I wanted to make this film, I said, hey, would you mind, I'm going to go shoot this film. It's going to be talking head interviews against Limbo Black, intercut with these amazing photos that I got from one of the cabbies. You know, I mean, I, I kept it as simple as I could for my first film because I had no money. I think I spent like $8,000 of my own money, which back then was like, you know, everything. Um, but I had to, cause I told my future wife that I was making a film. So, yeah. And so Bruce, so Bruce said, yes, yes, I'll, I'll edit it for you. So we, we just had a great time and we, and we noticed cause David Maisel's had died by now. Um, uh, documentary in the eighties. And there's many exceptions. Cause of course the Verite masters were still working. People like Barbara Koppel had done Harlan County, uh, you know, so there's exceptions to every rule. And of course there was great verite stuff going on, but the eighties was a boring period for documentary. It became much more American, no offense, but it became American masters, PBS, talking head, archivally driven. That's what documentaries were starting to, they were becoming more popular. Yep. 
but but that form like you know a spoonful of castor oil like it's good it's good for you but it tastes terrible going down um and and, and so um because david nasals had died and because documentaries were kind of boring at that period and again exceptions to the rule <clears throat> um you know bruce and i started talking about how you know pure verite docs, even the Maisels, because Al was a little lost for a while after the passing of his brother, which is totally understandable. Maisels was doing like the swimsuit issue for HBO and corporate projects and branded projects. And, you know, great classic verite films, in our opinion, uh, weren't really being made. That's, that was the genesis of Brothers Keeper. Bruce and I said to each other, you know, uh, first of all, my short film, Outrageous Taxi Stories, went on the festival circuit and did really well for a first outing. You know, it was a 25 minute short for a first little film. It went to every film festival, won a bunch of prizes. It was actually, you know, it, it encouraged me that I was on the right path of making something. So, you know, and I made that when I was 27 or 28. So how do you get, how do you get to the story? Like in, in terms of, you know, the connecting that next dot, how, right. when do you get hip to the brother's keeper story? Right. So, so Bruce and I said, let's make a verite film, like in the, you know, the, but really push the envelope, find the right story, ambiguous human character portrait. Um, you know, we were just kind of evolving our philosophy and we looked at a bunch of stories and it, literally for a year, we kept talking about it. Um, and then literally we knew it was the right moment because remember this is pre-internet. Um, we each, you know, the Maisels had this big open loft you know, on they since you know they moved to Harlem a, probably a decade or two ago. But in the in this period, they had this great big penthouse loft in the you know on Fifty Fourth Street, and we both uh, on the West Side, and we both um, literally that day came running into the office looking for each other, clutching the New York Times because there was a story in the B, in the Metro section of the New York Times about uh, this dairy farming brother accused of murdering his bedmate brother bill and the town thought he was innocent and they were rallying to his defense and we're like it just both struck us like holy shit that's our movie that's our movie it's an ambiguous human character portrait it's there's there's obviously an inciting incident and and i later have crystallized my you know i can't say i knew it then but the, the realization that it's a crime story you know yep. crime has perfect dramatic structure there's a beginning middle and an end that's there, right. there's two two entities vying for the truth the stakes are high and there's a resolution i mean it's like it's there, there can be no better example and i think that's one of the reasons we're attracted to crime as storytellers is that there's a there's a natural dramatic structure to it I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I didn't articulate it that day when I went clutching the newspaper, but that's what I've come to realize. So that's so, that's so interesting. In, in like you were in, instinctively magnetized to the elements and the potential and yeah. how you just pitched kind of why these crime stories are so fascinating. I've never thought about it that way, but it is exactly right because it's, you have um, kind of characters in conflict you have yeah. an inciting incident you have life and death stakes in a yeah. crime story or a murder story and exactly. it will tilt toward a resolution via the criminal justice system yeah, because you know, the, because the challenge of following a lot of stories in the present tense is you know they may peter out they may not go the way you want sometimes they go they don't go the way you want in wonderfully unpredictable incredible ways and sometimes they you know so 
crime guarantees you a natural structure. Again, I couldn't articulate it back then, but I, uh, you know, that's what I, I've come, I, we quickly came to realize, especially when we went off to do Paradise Lost. But we both felt like this was our story. The other thing that caught my eye, you know, was in the New York Times, they always have these area detail maps that catch your eye where they tell you what the part of the country is the story is. And again, this is the print version, like, you know, pre-digital internet world. Um, and the area detail map showed this town called Munsville, New York, which I knew very well because I went to Colgate University and eight miles away is Colgate. And Colgate was this bastion of privilege in a very, you know, impoverished part of, you know, central New York state. And I had been my senior year, I had been a big brother. There was a big brother program to like some local kids. And I just knew the area, I knew the world, I knew that dirt floor farmer world. And because I, I had done that big brother thing. So I felt very comfortable, you know, going back to that part of the world. <clears throat> um, we had to make a big decision though. And this is something I think younger filmmakers, you know, really don't appreciate or don't, you know, luckily they don't have to appreciate it but you know documentaries were not popular in the movie theater when we made brothers keeper right few and far between you know endless summer or whatever you know there was a couple of documentaries that made it to the movie theater but the tradition of theatrical documentaries basically didn't exist when we started brothers keeper you know a year after we made brothers keeper um you know michael moore's Roger and me came out. And of course, you know, the other so, big so, yeah, pioneering, so. the other big pioneering film, which was also a deep influence on me. Um, the previous year that we started Brothers Keeper, Errol Morris's Thin Blue Line came out, but that was, you know, and, and I remember sitting in the Lincoln Plaza cinemas watching like, of course, this is pre Harvey days. So when I say this, please remember it's 1989. Um, you know, I was sitting in a movie theater looking at a Miramax logo on a documentary in a movie theater. Holy fuck. That is so cool. I want to make documentaries for the movies. You know, I don't, I don't look at Thin Blue Line as a touchstone stylistically because back then I was actually against recreate, but that was Errol's big contribution is he kind of reinvented or in some, he could actually say invented the, he didn't invent the recreation, but recreation in documentary, he is hugely responsible for pushing that trend but it's a also, also a crime story, also the story of a murder. Exactly. And a wrongful, you know, wrongful conviction. Um, so uh, that was deeply influential on me, just like, oh, my God, movie theater. So Bruce and I had to have a serious conversation. OK, we're going to do Brothers Keeper. Um, you know, well, first of all, you know, because I knew the area, because I felt comfortable going back to upstate New, upstate New York, uh, you know, we met with the lawyer in the case, we met with the townspeople, and I just knew how to operate. First of all, Bruce, one of Bruce's great qualities is he's just a really personable guy, you know, not that I'm not personable, but he was particularly personable. People really liked him. So we, you know, we just, we convinced everyone to, you know, make this film at a time where people were pretty unsophisticated, especially this, what does that mean you're making a documentary? You know, right. like it was a lot to convince people. And I think, I think the fact that, you know, documentaries weren't well known and popular. Actually, allowed us to get the kind of access that we got. That, you know? that, that was that was my next question for you because, like, if you think about the like cultural shift between now, we're all so 
acutely sort of media savvy and self-broadcasting is the... I think it's harder and harder to get authenticity in documentary today. It's it's a little contrived, but that's, you know, maybe we'll, it, maybe okay. we'll talk about that for another, another This is great, I'm fascinated. Um, so anyway, so so we get the access, then Bruce and I had to make a, a decision about how, what are we, are we shooting this on video or are we shooting this on film? And we quickly decided to shoot it on film because back then this is again, pre-digital, pre-tape to film transfer. Only a few years later, there would be tape to film transfer. So a movie like Hoop Dreams, which was shot on video, could be transferred to celluloid to put in a movie theater, but that hadn't happened yet. So if you want, if you had this dream like we had of, of a documentary specifically playing in a movie theater, which was a crazy dream back then because nobody was buying documentaries for the movie theater, only a few specialty things like Errol Morris's which was groundbreaking and, you know, Endless Summer, because that was a specialty film targeted to, to surfers. But by and large, there was no theatrical tradition of documentaries. Michael Moore's film hadn't come out yet. But if you wanted to project your movie in a movie theater, there was no such thing as digital. So you had to shoot on film to end up with a negative so that you could create release prints from that negative on celluloid and ship that release print to a movie theater. That's the way the business was. So. The challenge though for no budget filmmakers like ourselves was that by the time you buy a roll of film, you know, a roll of uh, a 10 minute load of 16 millimeter film plus the quarter inch tape for the Nagra for the sound, by the time you buy that 10 minutes of raw stock, shoot it, send it to the lab, wait a week to get it all back, sync it up on your Steenbeck on your linear editing system because nonlinear did not exist. It costs $400 for every 10 minutes just to look at your footage. Um, when you have no budget, you know, t- you know, today, obviously, you shoot on a card. There's no cost to the recording medium today. And tape was much cheaper than film. But if you're going to shoot on film, big deal. So that was a huge, it's a miracle this film got made because we ended up shooting a lot of recans and short ends because that's all we could afford. Recans and short ends are at the end of a, commercial shoot or a shoot that's paid for, you know, because, uh, how do I explain this? Because uh, when you're shooting on film, the eight and, and you have to change loads every 10 minutes, you have a camera assistant in a black bag loading the next magazine. But when a shoot is over, they take that footage and put it back in the can. That's called a recan. Or if you shoot a load of 16 and you only use half of it, they break off what hasn't been shot. All of this is done in a black bag and the chance of fogging or damaging that footage is high. That's why you can buy that film on 10 cents on the dollar. And the fact that- Essentially, essentially you're using leftovers from other people's, you know, sort of commercial projects. Exactly, Better, better, better said. We're using everyone's leftovers. Sometimes, you know, we had full loads or whatever, but uh, it's a miracle this film got done. But that was a considered decision. Like every time you, we pulled the trigger, it was money that we didn't have, you know? So like, but I will never, I mean, obviously I'll never go back to the to shooting on film and editing on a Steenbeck, but the, those, just to make an aside, those, that discipline, I think gave me incredible skills as a filmmaker that I still carry today which is if it's costing you 400 bucks for every 10 minutes you shoot, you need to really think through what you're filming and, and think through to the next step, the next step, 
I started editing in my head, you know, on, and to which I'd still do on shoots. I know exactly the kind of coverage I need. Um, I think editorially while I'm shooting. And that came from the days of like, every time you pull that trigger, man, you better know what you're doing. You can't just shoot indiscriminately. Same thing in the edit. You know, it's very laborious to cut on film. I would never go back. You know, you have to literally rip the splice and hang the piece of footage on the pin, on the bin. So before you rip that splice, you're thinking through the ramifications of every decision. And that today, networks don't give you enough time to edit. Um, you know, it's always a rush. Uh, you know, people go out and shoot endlessly without thinking about yeah. editing. Which, which is all, which is the all. editing room with too much footage and not enough time. And I think, you know, those skills I got in those early days, uh, I, I, I really helped me think, think in that way. So, you know, so the first big decision on Brothers Keeper was shoot on film. If you want to play this movie in a movie theater, you have no choice because you have to end up with a release print. If we had started two years later, different story. Um, so that was a big decision. And then the other decision, which I think is, and again, it's hard to talk about yourself without sounding like you're bragging or whatever, but um, you asked, I think. But <laughs> Yes, please. Um, you know, I think Brothers Keeper, big contribution and where we departed from the Maisel's philosophy is really deeply fundamental. And I'm going to say something as I describe this, you know, I think the next generation of filmmakers or the younger generation of filmmakers working today will like, what is he fucking talking about? All documentaries are like this, but they weren't. And what I'm specifically saying is I totally dug everything about the direct cinema, cinema verite, philosophical approach to filmmaking, except one thing. And it's where we departed and where I think we we stood on the shoulders of these amazing people. And I know that sounds like I'm trying to put myself at their level and I'm not, I swear. But I think we took their philosophy and pushed it to the next realm, which is if you talk, if you interviewed the Maisel brothers or Penny Baker back in those days, they would tell you there is no such thing as a director on our film. You can't direct reality. You're capturing an objective reality. That's what direct cinema was. You're capturing objective reality in a film. And I always took issue with that because I think all filmmaking, all media is extremely subjective. You're not going for the literal truth of anything. Anyone who watches Paradise Lost and thinks that's the literal truth of what took place in Arkansas, it would be sorely mistaken. It's the emotional truth, but the only way to get the literal truth of any situation would be to have experienced it yourself or to have at least sat through six weeks of murder trial. There's, you know, there's one week. It's of, a constructed narrative at the end of the day. They, they, they like you're, you're relying, you're, you're relying on the filmmaker to give you a truthful representation, but it's a hyper reality because, you know, uh, brother's keeper, the, the murder trial was four weeks long, but you only see about an hour of it in the movie. So you're seeing an hour of four weeks. So it, by definition, it's, it's, uh, you know, kind of a hyper realism. Um, and so to me, all filmmaking is subjective. Now, when working in documentary, that doesn't give you the permission to put words into people's mouths or to make things up or to present something that is just factually incorrect. So people sometimes misconstrue when I say all filmmaking is subjective. You know, Paradise Lost is a story of a wrongful conviction. Brothers Keeper is a story about a guy who never should have been brought into the legal system, but you're not seeing every facet of it. And so filmmaking is subjective. 
And so, and this is what I think our contribution is to the progression of documentaries and what younger filmmakers have told me about Brothers Keeper is that to me, it's, you know, if we say that, the, you know, if we admit that, no, there is a director on a movie and that uh, a documentary and every documentary is a million subjective decisions from how you frame the shot you yep. know, look, Brothers Keeper was only shot on the weekends, by the way. We worked full wow. time for Brothers my during the day. And until the trial started, what, you know, we actually were only going up on the weekends for all that kind of pre-trial family stuff. So, you know, of course, it's a subjective film. We were only there on the weekends. We had limited amount of film. Then you take your limited amount of film and you have, I think we had 60 hours of dailies uh, for Brothers Keeper. Um, you know, you're only seeing two of those 60 hours. So of course it's a subjective film. So we said, and again, this is where people go, huh, what are you talking about? This is where we said, you know what? We are directors, it is subjective. Why can't we use more of the tools of the scripted filmmaker in our documentary? Of course you can't cross the line of fake interviews, putting words, you know, I don't mean that you still have a journalistic uh, responsibility to tell the truth in quotation marks. Um, but why can't you have an evocative opening title sequence? I mean, Brothers Keeper has a very evocative opening title sequence, which was new back then. Nobody was doing that. It's very tame by today's standards. My God, you know, opening title sequences for documentaries are like movies. But when we did it, we were actually criticized by the then leading documentarians of the day they're like you can't have an opening you know, a lot of a lot you know brothers keeper was a big hit and then so all the people who have been doing this for 20 years are all like you know finding reasons to criticize the film that that you know that's the dirty little truth about some of the reaction to brothers keeper is like you know the leading documentarians back then a lot of them criticized the film because we did things like an evocative opening title sequence. We did, God forbid, we had an original music score. We hired Jay Unger and Molly Mason, these incredible, incredible fiddle, you know, fiddle violin uh, kind of bluegrassy masters to do the score because that felt appropriate to the era. These guys, you know. Um, Striking score, by the way. It's an incredible score. I mean, I kind of ripped off Ken Burns that was used for, uh, theme music for the Civil War, and it just was this haunting, you know, string music that I said, okay, I'm going to go after these guys and have them score the whole movie, the whole documentary. And back then, you know, just like we were criticized for this evocative opening title sequence, we were criticized. Well, you can't have a music score in a documentary. That's manipulative. You're you're manipulating people's emotions. That's not journalistic. Obviously, we do that now without thinking about it. And I'm not saying we're the only ones who did this, but I think what our, you know, what our contribution was, was thinking about, you know, a, a beautiful cinematography style that I think that movie is shot beautifully given the fact that we shot you know, recans and short ends. Um, it, had, it had a certain editorial style. It embraced ambiguity, which a lot of people found troubling. Like, did he kill that? Did he kill his brother or not? Well, we want you to go off and debate that. We don't want to. We don't want to tell you what to think. That was criticized. Um, so this whole approach, I, you know, and then the biggest thing, of course, is what we started talking about before: is this hyper awareness of dramatic structure, which means, you know, 
withholding certain information until the right dramatic moment, we were, right. we were being told that process is not journalistic. And so we got a lot of flack, but I think that movie, that film, you know, helped, you know, broaden the definition of what is a documentary. And it unquestionably did. And, and, and it, you know, there are these milestones when you look back and in sort of one may or may not, I'm, I don't know how aware, acutely aware of it you were at the time, you know, as a student of film, you may have known exactly what you're doing, but suddenly when the medium changes, that was a moment in which the medium, you changed it. You know, things were subsequently different. Those, um, uh, elements and sort of methodologies that you just articulated, suddenly it opened up to, hey, this is a movie and it's using the movie toolkit. And, yep. you know, now in retrospect, as you say it, and I'm, I'm sort of struck by, I can imagine the sort of purists or the icons of the times kind of attacking it because you gave it a shake. You yeah. know, and yeah. and and suddenly the game is different now. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's interesting because again, I don't want to say we were the only ones doing it, but we there weren't that many. And you know, I had mentioned before that the first great revolution in documentary was the 1960s verite masters inventing portable sync sound filming, so you can go out into the real world, and then coming up with the idea. It's not just a technical achievement; it's a philosophical one about how to approach a story. I think the second great, and sorry if I'm including myself in it, um, I think the second great revolution in documentary was this early, was this kind of early 90s, late 80s, early 90s period. And again, all due respect to Barbara Koppel, who I deeply admire and is a good friend and was continuing to do great work and Penny Baker and Maisels, they were all doing work during this period. But generally speaking, documentaries became a little boring and in the, in the, in the or the public perception was a, a kind of talking head, historical, retrospective. Medicinal. The medicinal dog. Medicinal, medicinal. So in the early uh, 90s, late 80s, there was a handful of filmmakers that were really what I would call redefining or expanding the definition of what is a documentary. And that was happening. Errol Morris did it with Thin Blue Line. And what his contribution was, was this idea of recreation and a beautiful cinematography style that was new and breathtaking michael moore was expanding the definition of what a documentary could be um, by being this filmmaker as on camera ombudsman that people like morgan spurlock and others have have emulated but that was new putting the filmmaker on camera especially this you know irascible guy just you know that was new that was expanding what a documentary could be um, people like Jenny Livingston with Paris is Burning, um, you know, or Hoop Dreams a few years later, you know, putting stories on screen, putting characters on screen who you don't normally get to see, you know, embracing marginalized communities. I think Brothers Keeper falls into that bucket, too. But I think the bigger bucket that I think Brothers Keeper fell into uh, is this idea of fuck it, you know, we why can't we use all the tools of the scripted filmmaker except for fiction, obviously. Why can't we use all the tools of the scripted filmmaker, be hyper aware of dramatic structure, beautiful music, composition throughout, embracing ambiguity, which of course we borrowed from the verite filmmakers, not like we invented ambiguity, but that's what I think Brothers Keeper did. It was part of a small group of filmmakers who were actively pushing uh, the definition of what a documentary is, which 
that allowed theatrical distributors to kind of realize, wait, there is a business here. And the 90s saw an explosion, thanks to Michael Moore and, and Roger and me doing so well. But theatrical distributors saw this huge opportunity. And so the 90s saw this incredible growth. In fact, I, I, didn't, I thought we had reached the pinnacle then that we, you know, that, oh my God, distributors are buying. Sundance is treating documentaries as respectfully as scripted movies and theatrical distributors are buying them. I mean, that was like, we talked about the golden era back then. And then that nicely dovetailed into new technology like DVD. I mean, the Metallica DVD, I mean, I was locked in a, con that was my first great, you know, business experience was, you know, we were locked in a condo and had one of those all night bidding wars on the Metallica movie, which sold for just DVD for a mind boggling number from, you know, from Paramount, a movie studio, my goodness. I mean, so to me, that was the second great uh, revolution in documentary. And I'll skip ahead since I've done the two, I'll tell you the third great, Please. Um, the third great revolution in documentary. And there's little milestones along the way, but basically the technical invention of the sixties leading to the philosophical breakthrough, you know, the nineties, early nineties filmmakers, and I'm leaving a lot of people out, you know, but they know who they are you know, really making it a theatrically viable business. And then the ancillaries of DVDs really made it a real business. Finally, television was still trying to catch up, you know, very few networks actually actively program documentaries. But the third great revolution uh, is the one that you and I are benefiting greatly from these days. And that is the streaming revolution. And in particular, Netflix treating documentaries so seriously and treating it as a global business. Um, I think the advent of streaming has just, you know, and cultural forces. I mean, it's, it's, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but document, I mean, there's. Well, there's serialization. There's 800 times more production of documentaries going on an infinite versus back in the day when I started. And there's great opportunity and great appetite for this type of content. Well, and a piece and a piece of that third revolution, I think, is the serialization, right? Suddenly with the advent of the jinx and the sort of realization, hey, this can have the um, sort of satisfying arc of television, but it can, I mean, of a, of a feature film, but it can have the sort of granularity and the serialized narrative of television. And that kind of, you know, the limited series, you know, the limited nonfiction series really has kind of become the medium of, of at least of the moment, if not of the times. Absolutely. The docu-series is, you know, and it's great for filmmakers like ourselves because, you know, uh, you, you have more screen time. Not everything deserves to be a three or four part series and some things should be 90 to 105 minutes, but you know, whatever the feature length, uh, you know, Paradise Lost is two and a half hours. Metallica is almost two and a half hours. I don't think I could make films that long today. You know, the attention span is- Well, long. well, you know, I, I, in its stead, Paradise Lost today would be a three or four part, you know, docu-series, you know. Um, well, you know, that's, that's exactly right. The I mean, the interesting thing to me about all of this documentary production, however, is, and I could be wrong, and there's, a, of course, exceptions to the rule. Um, I actually think it's harder and harder to capture authenticity today because we're all filming, we're all documenting, we're also aware of what it means to be in a documentary, to make a documentary. You know, Brothers Keeper and even the people in Paradise Lost, they were exactly who they were when the cameras were on or off. Um, the Brothers Keeper guys didn't even understand what making a film was, you know, like Roscoe would always, the one of the, 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 the more jovial older brother, whenever we came back 
you know, uh, to, to see them, you know, he said, you here to take some more pictures, Joe, you here to take some, more? <laughs> I mean, he, like, he thought I was taking photographs. Yeah. I mean, he, they totally didn't get what, what it was to be making a film. And there's an authenticity in that film that, that, uh, you know, I pine for in productions that I do today. There's just something about it that just feels so real that you're really capturing something super authentic. And I question how, you know, Obviously, I'm not saying documentaries are fake, but there's a certain level of authenticity that I crave that that I don't think anyone's really totally achieving, except every once in a while, like a film like um, like one of my favorite films uh, of last year. I can't believe I'm forgetting it. Um, what was the film about the Romanian hospital fire? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm forgetting. I'm blanking on the name of it as well. But yes, yeah. it, it was absolutely it was shockingly authentic. Yeah, uh, uh, you know that kind of authenticity. All right, I have to, I have to Google. Someone Google right, it. Do it. Do I'm, it. Gonna, yeah, I'm, yeah. Gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna it's gonna bother me for the rest of the interview. Do it. Do it. Oh, collective. Do it. Collective. I just remember. Yes. That. So, so collective. That you know that to me was the most brilliant film of last year. I hope I'm not offending anyone because you just like nobody was performing or mugging for the camera. That was a level of authenticity that I love. And he was brave enough not to do interviews. You know, I even haven't been brave enough in pure verite films not to resort to an interview or two you know i mean that's a film that has zero interviews and just captures stuff as it's unfolding and to me that was the most exciting film of last year for that reason because it was authentic and i find you know look my cecil hotel and and you know uh, your night stalker you know we are it's highly stylized is it wrong no it's a past tense story so i kind of i kind of write it off, not write it off I kind of justify it to myself that it's a past tense story but like I mean honestly we've talked about this before I walk on to uh, my sets now to do interviews and I feel like I'm walking on a movie we, we bring people to central locations yeah we art we art direct the shit out of the frame we're not in their environment um, it's, it's, it, 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 there's enough grip and electric that you could be shooting a scene for actually a, a, a high-end scripted movie. Yep. Um, and I think some of that artifice gets in the way of the authenticity, you know, like, uh, it's, well, it's, I think, it's, I think it's how I think the business has evolved, but back in the day, like the idea of bringing, like, I would have told you, are you kidding me? Bring people to a central location. I'm going to that prosecutor's office and sitting him at his desk because I want to see his real environment. I'm not going to overlight and overproduce it because I think to me, there's an inverse relationship between production value, which we also crave these days, you know, and, and people being natural. And for, you know, my whole thing with documentary back in the day was like, let's, do everything you can to make people forget their cameras are there. And today we do, you, know, you can't, you know, you can't help but know there's cameras there because there's usually two cameras and sometimes three and like enough grip and lighting to like, you know, do a movie. And, and it's just a very different way of doing things. Well, and, and, and it's, you know, we're using DPs. I mean, you and I also share, um, you know, Adam Stone, who I think shot Bundy for you and shot the last narc for me. And that's somebody that is, you know, and, and shot uh, the, the Way Brothers film, you know, and series. And, and that's somebody that also shoots Jeff Nichols movies. And like these people are sort of artists and craftsmen that are, um, you know, 
feature filmmakers that are being sort of applied to or integrated into this documentary thing. And, it, you know, it's funny what you were saying is as you were talking about the, the kind of inverse, you know, sort of proportion or relationship between the apparatus and the authenticity in a weird way, I've always justified it too vis-a-vis and, and not even justified it, but for me, I have always thought of it, oh, I'm actually getting these people to perform themselves. And so I always think of it as it's actually like highly directed because it's not just the story, it's the storyteller and their ability to sort of um, be brought back to that place in some way or another where these past tense stories do feel immersive and do feel as if they're unfolding. And I think that's kind of the fundamental trick of a lot of these, you know, the past tense films that, 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 you know, that we're talking about now, whether it's Nightstalker or Cecil, where it's sort of making you feel as if it's unfolding right now. And these are stories that happened, you know, 35 years ago or yeah. whatever. Yeah. I know, by the way, the fascinating thing about Brothers Keeper too, while we're on that, um, is how, how it got distributed. I don't know if you want to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, well, I mean, hold on. Even I do, but before that, I've got a couple of questions, which is how many days did you shoot? And what was your crew, like what was the crew size making that movie? Okay, before I answer that, I should tell you, I realize I have a 1.30 call, so we probably will need a part two of this, right? We'll do, we'll do, we'll do part two. Give us, give us what you can quickly and we'll pick it back okay, up. Cool. Right. Hey, Latavia, see if you can push that call for a few minutes. And it, it, it involves a lot of people, so you may not be able to, but... Um, if not, we'll pick it back up. Yeah. Okay, um, we'll do. Yeah, I mean, Brothers Keeper was basically me and Bruce. Um, uh, we, our cameraman was a guy named Doug Cooper, um, who then went off to do a lot of commercials and kind of had a, a different kind of a career and, and didn't come back to the documentary fold, um, but did an amazing job um, for the trial. Uh, so, so for the, for most of brothers keeper, it was uh, me, Bruce and Doug Cooper. Bruce took sound and I did the interviewing. Um, obviously if Bruce felt like he had something to add and wanted to chime in, he was, it was fine. But generally I did the interviewing. He took the sound. We were both the producers, whatever that meant. It was all our money. We maxed out a dozen credit cards. Uh, and, uh, Bruce took a second mortgage on his house and I took a second mortgage on, on, uh, I had just bought my first apartment for like $80,000 in Brooklyn. I wish I had held it because that apartment today <laughs> probably worth like 2 million bucks, but, um, um, you know, we, uh, it was just us for, for most of it. Um, f then at some point, um, interestingly, the, uh, Lydia Tanaglia who runs ZPZ started ZPZ and did Anthony Bourdain actually her first job in film. Well, her first job in film was she was the receptionist at the Maisel brothers and we needed a camera assistant and she was, she had an interest in that. So she joined us as a camera assistant. But that was like a crazy decision. I mean, it worked out great and love Lydia and she did an amazing job. But uh, that was a crazy decision because we were shooting on film and recanned films. And so somebody with no training, obviously she was taught, but her job was to go into the black bag where you couldn't get light into the bag or you'd ruin the film. Her job was changing magazines and reloading and loading and handing us the next magazine. And sometimes the loads were only four or five minutes long because we were using short ends. So she, she was around for a bit. My wife, Lauren, um, uh, you know, I think I, did I get married? Yes, I had just gotten married, but she joined us um, and helped us a lot. Um, 
that was kind of, and then for the trial, we had, there was a, a sound man named Mike Karras who joined us, but it was, it was. I'm hearing you say that. I'm so jealous. Like I, I want to go make a movie with like a oh, three. It was so much crew. fun. It was one of the great adventures of my life. I, I couldn't believe, I, don't know, I was 28 or 29, I think. Um, I couldn't believe we're making a film. We're shooting on film. Uh, you know, it's, we're going, having this strange experience. Um, the film taught me so much about who I am, about life. You know, it's this, at the end of this dirt road, you know, like, you know, at any other time, if you had gone off the highway, if you were driving on the highway and you, you had a flat tire or needed to get something and you went off the highway, you drove off the highway to find some sign of civilization and you drove down their dirt road called Johnson Road and you got to the end of Johnson Road, you know, you would see, you know, rusted refrigerators and, and, and stoves and car parts kind of strewn about in the high grass. And then you'd get to the end of this dirt road with this cul-de-sac and there might be a dead pig hanging from the tree and this dilapidated shack. In most instances, I think the natural human reaction for anybody in that situation would have been to slam the car in reverse. Notice that's that kind of reverse that I'm yep. doing with my yep. arm, yep. <laughs> like a car from the, from the 80s. You know, you'd slam the car in reverse and, and, and with fear that this was deliverance north and you want yep. to get the hell out of there. But we didn't. We had the courage to stay, to get to know these people and to make this beautiful film that has touched a lot of people. And these guys were like, even though they didn't change their clothes, but maybe once a year uh, and they smelled and the inside of that shack was disgusting. I, I, I came to love that smell. And cause I felt like <clears throat> we were having this incredible adventure that my own, and this is the, every film has given me an incredible life lesson. I don't know what it is at the time, but when I ruminate on it, I, I come, I, I realize why I'm making this film. And this film was all about breaking down my stereotypes, you know, and being less judgmental about people. We all are judgmental to some degree or other. And I was a judgmental person. And, um, you know, and it, instead and that of was, I, that was the gift that film gave you, instead of hightailing it out of there, I came to embrace these guys who turned out to be the warmest, nicest people I've ever met. And that was an important lesson to not judge a book by its cover, which sounds so basic, but I lived it for a year and learn that. And that was such, a, that was really, really important. Beautiful. I, I, I do want to resume with part two. And yeah, me, I, I do want to tell you the distribution story too. Yeah. Okay, great. Do we have time? Let's do it. No, 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 not now. But like when we, I do have to go, but. Okay. Uh, you know, we, when, we, when we, we will reconvene and we will do part yeah. two. And, and I actually love just going super deep on, on Brothers Keeper. I'm, I'm so grateful for the time. It's one of my all time favorite movies. Oh, so cool. thank you. Like cool. I could, I could see it on, I, I, could see like the, I, I, I hope I'm not sounding like I'm bragging. Or whatever. No, no, not at all. I loved it. It's beautiful. It's like, it's as a filmmaker, it's what I'm, I'm dying to hear. Yeah. Cool. Great. All right. So let's do part two. And uh, this was great. All right. Cool. All right, man. Thanks. Talk to you Be later. Be good, buddy. You too. Take care. Thank you for taking the time to listen to today's episode. And thank you to Joe Berlinger for taking time out of his busy schedule to have a conversation with us about documentary filmmaking. Why he does what he does, how he does it, and what we can learn from talking to him. I'm Tiller Russell. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. And the sound, magic, and mix comes from Nathaniel, Post Up Audio in Los Angeles. 
Music by Zydepunk. Additional guitar by Steve Pagliaro. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Bradley Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Please don't forget to subscribe, and thanks for listening.